0: All right, I invite you to turn in God's word, God's words to us in Mark chapter 8 this morning. Mark chapter 8. It's with great anticipation we come to this moment every week. Every week I look forward to the privilege of uh, being able to open up the word to you in a corporate gathering. Uh, There's no other place that I would rather be than to proclaim his word to you. I take the task very seriously and recognize that I am not sufficient uh, to proclaim the word of God, uh, but only in Jesus's enablement and power. And so uh, as we come this morning in our study to the beginning of Mark chapter eight, we come to a section where Jesus is finally being accepted. If you notice at the end of Mark chapter seven, this actually started there. Uh, where we learn that Jesus is being accepted, but his acceptance is not among the Jewish people. Last week, I shared with you a map, and if you remember on the map and the PowerPoint, it, it demonstrated that Jesus leaves the region of Galilee in chapter 7 and presses north outside of the borders of Israel. This leads him to the city of Tyre and Sidon, the other city, and When in Tyre, he comes across a woman who asks for Jesus to heal her daughter. And so through a series of events, Jesus decides not to leave the city and go where this little daughter was, but to heal her daughter from a distance, to exercise a demon. And Jesus begins serving Gentiles in Tyre and Sidon, modern day Lebanon. So he leaves there, He goes into the region of the Decapolis, the 10-city region. Goes down into this Gentile population to the south and the east of the Sea of Galilee. He meets a deaf and a mute man. And with one word, Ephatha, be opened. Jesus heals this man. And this man and his friends and the crowds in the Decapolis respond with fervent zeal to the Lord. I mean, the more he charged them to be quiet, the the more they spoke about him. Because they believed that Jesus does everything well. He had the power to heal a deaf and a mute man. He can do anything. And so Jesus is being accepted among the Gentiles. It's an unlikely acceptance. This acceptance then continues on into chapter 8 in the first part of the chapter where Jesus will perform another miracle, this time among the Gentiles. But I want to focus our attention all throughout this morning on some familiar characters that are there or just after the miracle that Jesus interacts with. Two familiar groups of characters, the Pharisees and the disciples. Now we have seen both of these characters before from time to time, but this morning all throughout the sermon, we are going to keep our eyes on them. We're going to focus on them and we're going to do that so that we might know how we relate as followers of Christ to the response of the Pharisees and the disciples regarding Jesus and mission. And so as we do that this morning, we start by first looking at Jesus and performing a miracle among the Gentiles where he goes on mission. Look in your Bible, verse 1. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. Here In this text, as we begin and go into this first miracle, the feeding of the 4,000, we see Jesus' tender compassion on these people, and we we learn that he has compassion on on them because, as verse 1 says, he finds himself again surrounded by a great crowd. As you look at that text, you come to that place, I think what Mark is intending is he's intending you to see this miracle story as a sequel to another story that he had given us just two chapters before. For the last time that Mark used the words great crowds, it was about a gathering of 5,000 men plus women and children whom Jesus decided to provide bread and fish for. And so when Mark starts this story, he has Jesus again in the presence of a great crowd with his disciples here. As we come to this text, I do think it's a sequel. Some of you will come to this place in Mark's gospel. If you're reading through it with me, and you say, well, you know, what's going on here? Is this like another account of like the feeding miracle? It's the same thing. But as you, you read through the text, you soon realize that this one's different. There are some similarities, many similarities, but there are some differences as well. Their differences involve the number of the loaves. Look down in your Bible at verse five. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. How many loaves did he use with the 5,000? You can answer out loud, five. How many fish? Two. In this text, Jesus uses seven loaves and some small fish. I don't know exactly how many of you, small fish. There's a difference in the, the amount of people who are fed. Look down in your Bible at verse 9. It says, and there were about 4,000. Okay, 4,000. In the first feeding, it was 5,000 men plus women and children. Here it's 4,000. There are differences. There's also a, an important difference in the location. The first miracle, Mark chapter 6, occurs in the regions of Galilee, perhaps around Capernaum, among the Jewish people. And this one, I believe, is connected at the beginning of this verse, beginning of this chapter, with the previous narratives. So I have this one occurring in the region of the Decapolis as well, the region of the 10 cities, where you primarily have a Gentile audience. You say, why in the world were there two feeding accounts mentioned in this text in the Bible? It's because the bread. That was originally given to the Jews is now being offered to the Gentiles. It's true physically, with Jesus providing bread. I think it's also true metaphorically, Jesus is beginning to share his ministry with the Gentile people. As we come to this text, Mark A, we see that Jesus is concerned because it's been three days. Some of them likely have gone the whole way through any rations of food that they may have brought with him and Jesus is compassionate on them. Many of the commentators point out that this word compassion is a strong word. I agree with them that, that Jesus has moved deeply within his own being by the needs and so he tells the disciples I've got compassion we need to do something and let's look at their response. Look at verse four. I mean this is just fascinating. Verse four and his disciples answered them ready see so like ready for this profound answer ready first word how how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place now I was first reading this several weeks ago now in my office I have a journaling bible ESV Journaling Bible, it allows me to mark, you know, on the pages next to the gospel mark, and I'm reading this text, and I get to this question. How can someone provide bread for these people? I mean, I almost took the Bible and threw it across the room. Like, I don't throw Bibles, though. That's my one redeeming quality. I was so frustrated with the disciples and their dullness. I mean, how could they ask that question? Right? I mean, Just a few chapters earlier in the book, thousands of people are fed and they ask, how can one feed these people? I mean, I I resonate with two ways I heard the disciples described this week. One commentator wrote this. Uh, He said, the disciples demonstrate that they have learned nothing. They have no idea how such a large crowd is to be fed. Or another, David Garland wrote this. He said, the disciples come off as dunderheads. It's a word I don't normally use, but one I'm tempted to use with the disciples. They come off as dunderheads worrying about not having enough to fix lunch. As a matter of fact, I think it's because of the response of the disciples, the shocking response of the disciples that many liberal scholars will say, you know, these have to be the same miracle. They completely ignore all the facts of the text. They say they have to be. I mean, how could they ask that question? I and mean, they asked that question in the first feeding, it makes sense there. How can you come up with bread for this many people? But now instead, I think a more con- conservative explanation is that this place might be even more desolate than the first place the first feeding of the 5,000, the disciples could imagine going into villages and finding food, picking up some things for the people. But in this case, there's no chance. There's no hope. They're in a desolate, desolate location way out in a wilderness place. Regardless though, this is an intolerable failure on the part of the disciples. My question, they had a question. My question is, How can they ask how when staring in the face of the son of God in a private conversation? Here it's obvious though that they have their eyes only on temporal earthly things. They've set their minds on earthly things. They see 4,000 men and no food. They have failed to fix their eyes on the one who has done it before. The one who is the author and the finisher of their faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, as I come to this text, I say, how tragic, how pathetic, how miserable, but how much like you and me and the way we approach Jesus. And so I wonder, as I prepare this sermon this week, what trial or temptation do you find yourself in where you are focusing solely on your own resources and your own earthly situation? You are discouraged by your own condition your job or the lack thereof, the condition of a family member. You are discouraged by your life situation or the life situation of someone in your family because you aren't really considering Jesus and you don't really believe in his power to deliver you or to strengthen you in the midst of the challenge. And so when, I think the disciples should learn here, we should learn, when Jesus is in the equation, it changes everything. He's the Savior. That's what he does. He has power. He can deliver. But let's look at the patience and provision of Jesus in verse 5. See his patience there. Look at verse 5. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. Struck here, before we go much further, I'm just struck with the patience of Jesus. I mean, if I were surrounded by a group like this, I think I would be tempted to start over. Yeah, you know, hey, it's been good. It's been good. I just need to get a new staff. I'll, I'll help you find, like, other positions, various places. I'm sure there's a place for some of you. But he's so patient. I cannot imagine keeping my cool long enough to ask the same question I'd asked in the feeding of the 5,000. How many loaves have you? If I asked it, it would at least be with clenched teeth. How many loaves <laughs> do you have? I'm sure Jesus didn't do that. Here, These people, these disciples have been walking with him for over a year and they cannot imagine how they might get bread for people. When you think about where he is in his timeline, I mean, Jesus is going to be crucified in a year or two. And the entire mission will fall upon these 12. They've got a long way to go. A long way to grow. And they especially need to grow in their view of who Jesus is. Their view of Jesus. But Jesus is patient. And his provision comes in verses 6 through 9. So I'll just read through it. I don't need to make many comments here. says, and he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to sit down before these people and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them and they ate and were completely satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people and he sent them away. There are differences in numbers here, but I don't think that there's really much significant to that. There's different number of baskets, and I recognize that. I just think it helps us to understand the differences in the miracles. Here At the end, we find out that there are 4,000 people that are fed. I Actually, the word people is supplied by the ESV translators. I, I would prefer to draw a line through that and say 4,000 men, for the word that's used could be translated men or people, the ending of the word, for, you know, the 4,000 here. But when you go to Matthew's gospel, you find out it's 4,000 men plus women and children. And so we see Jesus is sharing the children's bread with the Gentiles. He's providing for the Gentiles. He cares for them as well. But the high point of his provision doesn't last very long here. It's a powerful miracle. For in verses uh, 10 through 21 Jesus converses with two familiar groups of people. This, these conversations quickly bring him back to reality. And uh, so he starts in his first encounter with an exchange with the Pharisees in verse 10. So look in your Bible at verse 10. It says, And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said... Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. So here, a very quick narrative. It doesn't take what three or four verses in the text, but uh, an important one, I think, for not only Jesus' interaction, but how he's going to interact with the disciples in a moment. So it starts with Jesus leaving the, the multitude. He goes across the boat to a district, or across the sea to a district uh, called Delmenhorst. Now, unfortunately, we don't know much about Delmenhorst. We don't know where it's located exactly. Just we haven't uncovered it yet, and so uh, probably somewhere around the Sea of Galilee. But once they arrive, the Pharisees, Jesus and the, and the disciples, the Pharisees come making demands on Jesus. They actually, the text says, they require a sign from heaven. Require him to give a sign from heaven, which means just a sign signifying from God of who you are, that you have the authority to do and to make the claims that you are. This is a very, very ironic, ironic request because he had just given them a sign like this across the other side of the sea when he fed 4,000 men from seven fish or seven loaves. But here Mark reveals in the narrative that the Pharisees are not genuine in their motive. Mark knows the motive of the Pharisees, and he knows that they have decided to do this because they're going to test Jesus. In other words, when I see the Pharisees demanding a sign from Jesus to authenticate themselves, they're simply trying to discredit him. Their demands are not coming out of sincere hearts. The way of looking at this is uh, their demands are, it's kind of like an authority, it's like an, a power grab or grab for authority where the Pharisees themselves can act as the final judge over Jesus to determine if what he says or does is accurate and true. And... Um, you know, just side note on our world today. This is how I think many of us, or many in our world, treat Jesus too. We want to act as a final judge. We will only accept Jesus if we have enough proof, or if the proof that He gives co- coheres with our own demands. I wonder how many times, even in our own lives, as followers of Jesus Christ, where we act as the Lord of our own lives. And we will listen to the words of Jesus in how we live our lives when it is appropriate and it fits. Jesus knows, however, here with the Pharisees that they would never approve of him. And so he leaves, refuses to give them a sign and he leaves. I think this is true because the Pharisees had hardened hearts to Jesus. For some reason, as I was reading through this text, it just kind of gave me a picture of maybe of the current political scene, you know, that we're kind of experiencing as an application or an illustration of this concept. I mean, there are two predominant political parties in our country, and our world, and you can take the same facts and they will interpret in different ways. I mean, every time, every time. Aren't you glad though, that we know where truth can be found in this book, in the Lord? Jesus Christ, even if the Pharisees are going to reject them. So Jesus responds to them by sighing. A deep sigh, probably dismay or sorrow. And then he asks why this generation keeps asking for signs. And when Jesus uses those words, this generation, they're very specific words that are used throughout the Bible to describe normally wicked generations. We have the time to turn to all these Old Testament texts, but I just tell you in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, these two words, "this generation," were often used to describe sinful people on this planet. So, for instance, they're used in Genesis seven one to describe the sinful generation of people who refused to listen to Noah and his warning about a worldwide flood. The scriptures call that generation "this generation." They're used as well in the book of Deuteronomy, actually all throughout Deuteronomy, also in, I think it's Joshua, to describe the first generation of the Israelite people who left Egypt but lacked the faith in God to get into the promised land and grumbled continually and consistently, they were called this generation. So Jesus puts these Pharisees and their contemporaries among the people right alongside the wicked generations of Israelite people who rejected God, rejected Jesus. And to these type of people, Jesus will offer no evidence. Instead, he leaves. He gets into a boat with his disciples to cross over to the other side of the sea. And so that will be the scene for our very last story that we'll look at today. Jesus in a boat with his disciples. Now, before we read it, I'll just say, that should probably be a flag to know that this next story might not go very well. Okay, because the disciples don't do very well in boats in Mark's gospel. Okay, so with that word of warning, look at 8.14. Now they'd forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven? And he said to them, do you not yet understand? So as we go through this story, we see the danger of unbelief this exchange between Jesus and the disciples here. I think Mark is using the negative example of the disciples in this boat as a warning to his reader, as a warning to us and what we do and how we respond to Jesus. I break this narrative up into four parts, four acts. First of all, there's a problem, like many of these stories, especially that involve the disciples in a boat. (coughs) There's a problem, verse 14. The disciples forgot to bring bread with them in the boat. They actually have one loaf, which I take as what, like one literal loaf, but the loaf that's being described here is a very little loaf. Okay, normally be used uh, for one person's meal. Okay, it's like a personal piece of loaf of bread. Okay. The problem is 13 people, one loaf. Okay. That leads Jesus to issue a warning in verse 15, a warning. He cautioned them, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, Jesus had just spent time with the Pharisees. It's been a while since we've heard about Herod in the book. And so I want to look at this little phrase In, in the nature of this warning. What is this warning? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Word leaven, of course, is used often in the scriptures to speak of a little piece of fermented bread that you'd kind of take off of one batch, you'd add it to another, and it'd ferment the next bread, and then it would rise. However, in various places in the New Testament, the writers of scripture and Jesus use leaven as a metaphor for corruption that will spread the whole way through something. I'm mindful, remember months ago, I spoke on 1 Corinthians, and in that book, uh, Paul the Apostle is warning the Corinthians about the the leaven that's spreading through the church, allowing a man who's having an ongoing relationship with his stepmother to remain in church. You do nothing about it. It's like leaven that's going to corrupt the whole batch of dough. So this is a metaphor for the way corruption spreads through the heart of a community or a person. The bigger question I had, though, is why is Jesus combining the Pharisees and Herod? I mean, like, what do they have in common? Why would he be warning Jesus about them? And so I think the answer to that question is not at all obvious. I mean, I spent some time this week, you know, rolled up my sleeves and, okay, what I'm looking at different texts in Mark's gospel. What is the warning here? What's the nature of it? While there are plenty of possibilities, to me, it seems that Jesus is combining them because they both represent blindness and unbelief blindness and unbelief and I think it actually goes a step farther than that as well as he's warning the disciples not only are they blind full of unbelief that blindness leads to something even more or even darker a darker consequence and that consequence is direct opposition direct opposition to Jesus and his mission so Jesus warns the disciples to be alert Their their own consistent spiritual blindness and ignorance of the message of Jesus can lead them to a place where they are directly opposing him. Since he's saying, you know, you cannot just like be impartial on these things. For if you remain impartial to me and my miracles, you will soon be in direct opposition to me, like the Pharisees and Herod. So watch out for the leaven. Doubt and disbelief lead to darker consequences like rejection and opposition to the Lord. Now let's look at verse 16 at how the disciples respond to this. They got a problem. Only one. (laughs) Only one loaf. Jesus says don't be, he uses the bread shortage to don't follow the corruption of Herod and the Pharisees. Verse 16. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. To me, their ignorance can be seen no clearer than this this verse. The disciples completely misunderstand what Jesus is saying or they disregard it. The mention of leaven only makes them hungry. The disciples only hear reference to bread. Bread. See, yeah. Speaking of leaven, we don't have any bread. I just remembered that, and I'm hungry. Ironically, their response to Jesus' warning about the leaven, the Pharisees, and, uh, the leaven of Pharisees and Herod, illustrates their susceptibility to the same failure to believe Christ as Herod and the Pharisees had failed to do. So, for the time being, they remain with Jesus as insiders. But they better watch out. They better be careful. They must keep their eyes on Jesus. And then this response, as brazen as it is, as ignorant as it is, leads Jesus to close with a a series of sharp-pointed questions. I count up nine questions that Jesus asked them from verses 16 or 17 through 21. The first question is just like the obvious question that we would all ask. Why are you discussing that you have no bread? I'm talking about something different here. And then he leads them through these piercing questions. Do you not yet perceive? Middle verse 17, look in your Bible. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened, having eyes? Do you not see, having ears? Do you not hear? And. Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did, did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets? They said, seven. And I would translate this next part. And he kept asking them, do you not yet understand? In order to finish out his discussing, discussion with the disciples here, Jesus asked them nine questions. The first one is an initial rebuke about the situation. Why do you keep talking about food? After that question, he leads with a question that he will repeat at the end of the questions. Synonymous expressions. Do you lack perception? Do you not understand? And then at the end, do you not yet understand? He's getting to the, the basic problem with disciples are lacking in their ability to understand who he is. And, In the middle of the section, he reviews the specific details of two different feedings, the 5,000 and the 4,000, so that they might reconsider their present predicament. Okay, it's like the disciples have had a few tests and they keep failing. There are 5,000 people. There's no way to do this. They don't have faith in Jesus. Jesus provides. They failed test number one, but Jesus provides. So long comes... test too you know it's like when your professor or teacher gives you a makeup test like you know all all 12 of you messed up this test so we're going to give it again same test different location not 5,000 men now 4,000 men test will you have faith failure how can you provide bread for 4,000 people in the wilderness Test number three. Okay, we're going to do another makeup test. This is like a really dull class. You ever give two makeup tests? Another makeup test. This time, we're going to go into a boat. I'm going to change the test up a little bit. There'll just be one loaf and only 13 people. Now, go. What's, What's the verdict? Failure. Jesus says, you, So you, you still don't get it? The answer is, if Jesus is there, they have all they need. They have all their need. No matter what situation they find themselves in. In the middle of this section, Jesus rebukes the disciples with a question that I want to close with. He says, are your hearts hardened? I close with this in conclusion. You have, mer- you have heard much of Christ in this sermon and throughout the last several months. Have you been hardened to it? And to be honest with you, I can't tell how you're receiving the sermon, this series. For man looks on the outward things, but the Lord looks on the heart. There's one who knows how you receive and hear these words about Jesus. It's God. It's so in your heart. Do you say week after week? I mean, that guy just keeps getting up there and he's saying stuff. It's going on and on. But you fail to consider the sovereign authority of Christ over your life throughout the week. We hear these great things about Jesus, and we yawn. Some of us yawn and we snore our way through. We think that you know I can just be impartial to this stuff. Just hear it. it doesn't really matter. It doesn't be When that's not possible with Jesus. You can't just be impartial. we say, you know, maybe tomorrow I'm going to listen to these things and start taking Jesus seriously. We fail to consider the ancient inspired proverb, Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what what the day will bring forth. In other words, you don't know that you have tomorrow. So I ask. How will you receive Jesus? Today, this week, maybe you claim to be his follower, but you never read his words. You know, all these sermons, you leave Sunday, oh man, this stuff about Jesus, he's just like really awesome. You know, you're talking to other people as you leave, but then as you, throughout the week, you're not reading his words to you. It's even Jesus' is life transforming, but then you don't pray to him throughout the week. I mean, isn't there reason to question your commitment to his authority as Lord of your life if you never talk with him? I'm not. So it's naive to think that hundreds of people listening to the sermon would have it all together. You read the words of Jesus? Are you hearing the words of Jesus? Do you share Jesus' words with others? Yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I love him. He's authoritative. He can do all these miracles. But the only place we really talk about him is in here. Maybe out in the welcome center or our ABS class. But when we leave here, we shut down. Do you share the words of Jesus? I think another way of asking that question is, Do you have a hardened heart? Are you sensitive to the Lord? Know that he is your authority. I don't know about you, but I do not want to repeat the failure, the dullness, the dimness of the disciples. It's my prayer that God will give us grace to repent if necessary. to follow Jesus, the one who can always provide, the one who can always save, the one who does everything well this day and throughout the week. Let's pray together. Father, perhaps this sermon has been so intrusive this morning because in my own heart I've been rebuked. By seeing myself in the disciples. So, in the midst of a difficulty, a challenge, life situation, I ask, How can there be deliverance from this? And I fail to recognize the one who can provide. Lord, May you take our minds and our focus and turn them off of earthly things and turn them on to Christ this this morning. I pray for my brothers and sisters. Perhaps there's someone in the congregation, someone here today who's been as challenged and convicted as myself. I pray for your grace and mercy to help us love Jesus, love his words, Love to share his words on mission. Give us grace and strength, we pray, for your own glory in Jesus' name.